different than what's printed in your bulletin because I changed the title. And I actually changed the text. We won't be going into chapter 6. I'll be picking that up next week. Um, trying to keep this under an hour. So... Ah, uh, it's a busy week. We have grandchildren at our house this week. I have forgotten a lot of stuff. But we did have one of the graces where went through all the people and included grandma and then even grandpa. So I made the cut. I was relieved. If you'll open your Bibles to Ephesians 5, verses 18 to 33. Listen carefully. This is probably one of the most controversial texts in the Scriptures. Not sure it should be, but it clearly is. So... Let's get to it. Please listen carefully as this is God's Word. Ephesians 5, 18 to 33. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is your word, and we need it. We are so blessed that you have given us your spirit, that you have given us marriage, that you've given us your word. We thank you that it is truth. And we know we could not be the men and women that you desire in marriage or in singleness without your spirit. And Lord, we certainly cannot understand and be transformed by your word apart from the working of your spirit in our lives. So as we come to your word, as we read it, as we hear it taught, we pray that you would be working in us, transforming us, giving us minds to hear, and hearts to do that which you command. 
that you would give us hearts that love you more than anything else. So we pray by the power of the Holy Spirit, help us see Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. I don't know if you have ever read about the demilitarized zone between North and South Korea. It's a stunningly beautiful place. It's become something of a nature reserve. Hundreds of species of rare wildflowers, endangered birds, and animals flourish there. Of course, people don't go there. It's heavily fortified. It's covered with landmines. It's beautiful, but very dangerous. And it struck me as I was preparing to preach from this passage that it's just like that. It's an incredibly beautiful picture of marriage, and yet extremely dangerous at the same time. I told one of a pastor friend of mine this week that I was preaching on this passage, and he was just like, oh man, you might as well stick a grenade in your mouth because you're going to get blown up. I was like, thanks, that's encouraging. See, our culture tends to hear the language that Paul uses here of submission and headship as the verbal equivalents of landmines. They're explosive terms, potentially deadly for a pastor to venture out among them. So I'm going to try to tread carefully as we navigate this passage. And yet the dangers of misunderstanding aside... The fact remains that as we look around our society today, as Dave prayed earlier, you know, you witness the Ashley Madison scandal or the Supreme Court redefining marriage, it's abundantly clear that this passage has never been more important for us to articulate clearly and winsomely and compellingly the biblical teaching about marriage. So just how are we to understand our primary human relationships? Marriage and family, the domestic issues that this part of Ephesians 5 addresses, are hot topics. There's no way to avoid that. And this is one of those parts that if you didn't preach through all the sections, you'd probably skip. But since we preach through all the sections, skipping is not an option. But you think about it, should a wife submit to her husband, or is that notion a throwback to primitive patriarchy? Is the husband the boss who's home the castle where he calls the shots? What does family mean in a society of divorce, remarriage, cohabitation, homosexuality, prolonged singleness, out-of-wedlock births, where the nuclear family is no longer typical? Both our legal system and popular opinion are seized with perplexity about such issues. Rights, responsibilities, and authority are all up for grabs. And sometimes it seems even the believing church is dancing on the ragged edge of these issues. And so Christian people are deeply affected by the prevailing climate of uncertainty. We're so often confused and too often divided. And Ephesians offers keys to sanity and wisdom to enable the people of God to grow up into oneness and maturity. But its answers might surprise you, whether you tend to be traditionalist or complementarian or egalitarian about role relationships. 
most of those who assert that Christ establishes proper authority, hierarchy, and role distinctions use this passage as a proof text. End of discussion. They would argue the commands are clear and consistent with Scripture, and only willful perversity can twist them to say other than they say. But I think a closer look at this passage and a wider look at the context puts a radical spin on these controversial subjects of submission and headship, pressing us with complementary truths that are often overlooked. Because an honest look at this passage, remembering that Paul is only a message bearer from Jesus himself, shows how the message of role differences between wives and husbands is inextricable can't be separated from the message of mutual submission. So we're going to dive into this most difficult of passages, and I'm fully aware I'm likely to say something you don't like. And so in an attempt to make it easier to understand, I'm going to approach it a little bit more thematically, and I'm going to do that by pulling one verse out and looking at it first. And that's verse 31 which teaches us what marriage is. What marriage is. This passage is like a fair number of people in Washington, D.C. It's both rich and famous. And because it's rich, you could easily work through it word by word and get quite a bit out of it. But it's also advantageous to fly over the whole thing and call out the main points so we get a panoramic view of the immense biblical wisdom on marriage. So with that said, we have to ask, what's the essence of marriage? What's the definition of marriage? This is perhaps the main New Testament text on marriage. And here the Apostle Paul quotes the main Old Testament text on marriage. So you have it all right here. So here in verse 31 he says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That's a quote from Genesis 2.24. And when it says, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, some of you may recall the older English translations that say, cleave to his wife. I actually prefer that. The Hebrew word there in Genesis 2 is a word that basically means covenant. It's actually a medical term that uh, was used for the two sides of a wound to grow back together. Uh, but its meaning is basically of a covenant, a deep, exclusive, permanent, legal, binding commitment. That's a covenant. And the essence of marriage, then, is not a declaration of present love, as important as that is. To say, I love you, is not marriage. You can say that and not be married. Marriage is not so much a declaration of present love, it's the binding promise of future love. If that's the only thing you write down today, write that down. It's the binding promise of future love. It's a promise not to feel warm and loving all the time, because reality is nobody can promise that. It's a promise to be loving and faithful and cherishing and serving regardless of the ups and downs of your circumstances or the highs and lows of your emotions 
long-term through thick and thin. That's the essence of marriage. It's a covenant. Now, I probably don't have to tell you, but I'm going to anyways. This is on a complete collision course with our culture, which doesn't see the most important thing to be a covenant, but chemistry. Our culture will tell you what's most important is passion and chemistry. Now, in complete opposition to that, the great poet W.H. Auden said this. I love this quote. Any marriage, happy or unhappy, is infinitely more interesting than any romance, however passionate. Think about that. This is a brilliant guy, great poet, W.H. Auden. Any marriage, happy or unhappy, is infinitely more interesting than any romance, however passionate. Why? Because he says marriage is not the involuntary result of fleeting emotions, but the creation of time and will. Why would that be? I mean, how can anybody say that any marriage is more interesting than any romance? That put Hollywood out of business. In other words, what he's saying is covenant is more interesting than chemistry. How can he say that? Well, I think we have to sort of take apart or deconstruct the world's argument. Imagine a person with a view of chemistry. It's what really matters. And they, that person comes up to me and asks, think of the first time you kissed that girl who is your future wife. 34 years later, does it have the same electrical thrill to it? My answer would be no, and I should hope not. Here's why. That chemistry you're talking about, that first electrical thrill, and those of you that are married or those of you that have kissed anybody probably know what I'm talking about, it's largely ego. It's mostly about you. That's why you're so excited. It's not really love. It's ego. It's, you know, what's so thrilling about it is this person who you think is pretty great is into you, is responding to you. So this deep need for affirmation that all people have is getting filled, and that feels wonderful. But I want you to know that the thrill of knowing that this pretty great person likes you isn't anything like the thrill of you actually loving that pretty great person. To actually love someone, to be absolutely committed to somebody else's joy and well-being that you would die for that person. That's a strong feeling. That's passion too, but it's not the same. You know, you can have a so-called night of passion and not be willing to make any sacrifice at all, which shows you that it's all about you. So how does this type of long-term passion develop? Well, it takes a long time. You have to get to know who this person really is. At the very beginning, when you think you're falling in love with someone, you're falling in love with your image of that person, not the real person. It takes a long time to know uh, who that person is, to find out what they're like. So that's the first thing. 
Second, you have to make sacrifices. You just have to make sacrifices. You have to walk through difficulties. There has to be confrontations and reconciliations. And as time goes on, it shifts from the thrill of this great person liking you to your love of that person, your commitment to see that person flourish and thrive and grow and do well, even if it means at great cost to yourself. That's passion too. And that's a thrill too. But it's a thrill that contrasts with the first thrill like a lake contrasts with a puddle. Because there's size and depth and weight to it. It's covenant, not chemistry. Any marriage, happy or unhappy, is infinitely more interesting than any romance, however passionate. The essence of marriage is covenant, not the declaration of present love, but the binding promise of future love. That's the meaning of marriage. That's what marriage is. But that's not all, because this passage also teaches us what marriage needs. What marriage needs, verses 18 to 21. The Bible says if marriage is going to work, you need a spirit-empowered, gospel-based ability to love. That's the key. Unless you have that, it won't work. That's what you need, starting at verse 18. We covered this last week, so I'm overlapping a little bit. But it says, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. In verse 18, Paul says, be filled with the Spirit. We talked about that last week. What does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? Quick explanation, we go to Jesus, John 16. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. The Holy Spirit's job, as it were, is to take the knowledge of the person and work of Jesus Christ, things you know with your head. I mean, hopefully you know, you know Jesus died for you, and you know he loved you enough to die for you. The Holy Spirit takes what he did on the cross and makes it alive to you. So you grasp it, you get it, you understand it, and you grasp how wide and high and deep and long is the love of Christ. And Paul goes on and says to be filled with the Spirit means you're always amazed by that. You're always amazed by His love. You're always amazed by His grace. And the last thing he mentions is that, that makes it possible for you to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. When you have that sense of joy, that sense of God's love, it makes it easier for you to serve other people. That's verse 21. Then suddenly, verse 22, he says, wives, submit to your husbands. Now, wait a minute. He's talking about the fullness of the Spirit. He's talking about having your soul filled with God's love. And then he starts talking about marriage and wives and husbands. Why isn't there a transition? Why doesn't he say, okay, readers, I'm talking about the fullness of the Spirit, but now I'm going to talk about marriage? Why is there no transition? And there's no transition because he hasn't changed the subject. You won't understand this if you don't get that. He hasn't changed the subject. What he's saying is marriage will never work 
unless you assume this, unless you know this, unless you know God's love powerfully in your heart of hearts, you will not be able to do what you should do in marriage. Why not? Remember I mentioned the binding commitment of future love. What do I mean by that? There's no way that you'll ever come to the place, a place that through thick and thin, through conflicts and reconciliation, through times of difficulty and sacrificial service, a place where that initial selfish, egocentric, electrical charge turns into deep oneness and love, you're never going to get there unless you can love your spouse during times when your spouse is distracted, during times when your spouse is discouraged, during times in which your spouse is not being the spouse that he or she is supposed to be. And the, the real issue here, and the problem I think for our world is, if your spouse is the main source of love and happiness in your life, and you don't have a relationship with God, or your relationship with God is not very real to you, you subscribe to it, but it's not a present reality in your life, if your real source of meaning and hope and love and joy is your spouse, then when your spouse stops giving you the meaning and hope and love and joy that he should or she should give you, when they criticize you, when you go through a rough patch, you're going to melt down. Some of you have toddlers. You know what I mean when I say melt down. We rediscovered that this weekend. You know why? You, because in this scenario, you can only keep loving if you're getting it. As long as you're giving love to your spouse and your spouse is loving you back, fine. But when you have to give love and your spouse isn't giving you much back, you're going to freak out. Why? Because you don't have any other source of love. When your spouse criticizes you, if he or she is the main source of love in your life, you're going to freak out. You will melt down. If your spouse goes through a bad time in which he or she is not being the spouse that he or she should be, you're going to say, well, since you're not being the spouse you ought to be, I can't be the spouse I ought to be. And you'll withdraw. And that's how marriages break down and you go looking for chemistry elsewhere. But what if you love God more than you love your spouse? Then you'll love your spouse well. What if you get this love from Him? What if being filled with the Spirit means that the love of God is a deep reservoir in the center of your life? Then during those hard times, you're still able to love. You'll be able to love even when you're not getting much back. So how will you have this incredible spirit-empowered, gospel-based ability to love, which you desperately need if your marriage is ever going to come to a point, place of strength and wholeness? It comes from the gospel. It comes from the Holy Spirit making Jesus real to you. I've told the elders many times that Amongst the families in our church, most kid problems are parent problems. And most parent problems are marriage problems. And most marriage problems are Jesus problems. 
That's not true in every single case, but it's true the vast majority of the time. The Lord created us, and the Bible says we turned away from him. And what did Jesus do? Jesus didn't say, well, you're not being the spouse you should be, so I'm not going to be the spouse that I should be. No, Jesus came to earth. He emptied himself. He became a servant. He went to the cross. He gave himself up for us. Husbands and wives, look at how Christ loved us and gave himself for us. The ultimate love of a spouse. When he was up there on the cross looking down at us being terrible spouses, killing him, betraying him, denying him, mocking him, in one of the great acts of spouse love in history, he stayed. He spoke the truth in love and he didn't leave us. And through that death comes resurrection. And when you know he loves you like that, when you know the Holy Spirit brings that kind of love home to your heart, when you love God more than you love your spouse, then you'll love your spouse well. But if your spouse is the main source of love in your life, you will not love your spouse well. See, when you're acting out the gospel, you love your spouse not because he or she is lovely, but to make them lovely. Because that's what Jesus did for us. So immediately after discussing the spirit-filled life, Paul turns to marriage. And he wants you to know there's a tight connection between marriage and life in the spirit. And that tight connection teaches us a couple things. First, the picture of marriage given here is not of two needy people, unsure of their own value, finding their significance and meaning in one another's arms. If you put two vacuums together, you just get a bigger vacuum. And you just hear this giant sucking sound. Paul's assuming that each spouse has already settled the big questions of the first half of chapter 5. Why they were made by God and who they are in Christ. That's why this comes in chapter 5 and not chapter 1. you got to get through all that other stuff of who you are in Jesus before we get to this. If you do this first, you're doing it backwards. You know, if that was the case, Paul wouldn't have started in verse 18 with this command to be filled with the Spirit. Now, the reality is, often we're running on fumes spiritually. But a believer knows where the fuel station is, and more importantly, that it exists. And after trying all kinds of things, Christians have learned that worship of God with our whole heart and the assurance of His love through the person and work of Jesus Christ is the thing that our souls are meant to run on. If that isn't understood, then we won't have the resources to be good spouses. If you look to your spouse to fill your tank in a way that only God can do, you're demanding something that's impossible. For our marriages to work, we need to be filled with the Spirit. Because if you're not filled with the Spirit, which is what marriage needs, then you'll never be able to learn what marriage does. What marriage does, starting at verse 22. Now we get to the landmine verses, finally. Finally. 
it says, Wives, submit to your own husbands, ask to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. The same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, he who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. Well, you won't have to look far in our culture, on television or books or movies, to see that this is an unpopular subject. And this is an uncommon message. However, we know that God doesn't command us to do that which is not for our own good. In addition to our knowledge of God's good plans and good intentions and good commands for us in his word, you don't have to look far in our culture to see widespread breakdown of marriage. A number of you have been through that. You've experienced, you know it. But when you look at how our world exalts dysfunctional marriages, which I believe it does, you have to realize there has to be some lie in there, in their understanding of marriage and their rejection of God's design. Why would our culture be the ones to whom we would look for advice on marriage? When in our culture, marriage usually isn't successful and usually doesn't look like something good. I know there's exceptions, but they are that, exceptions. And I think the Apostle Paul's telling us the world's relationships, all of them, are dysfunctional. Don't live like that. This is a place where you can be set apart, where you can live as salt and light. As we come to this passage and he tells us to mutually submit to one another, he's saying the way in which you relate to one another is radically different than the way in which the world relates to one another. We're to live differently because we're to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, and we're to be filled with the Spirit. That's helpful, particularly if you find yourself in a less-than-ideal marriage. Marriage is hard work. There's conflicts, there's disagreements, there's money troubles, there's employment issues. And yet a marriage is to play out, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish, according to God's holy ordinance, till death do us part. doesn't always work that way, but most of us said something like those words, those of us who are married. And when the hard times come in marriage, you already know what the world's going to tell you. I guarantee you, when the hard time comes, the world's going to say, walk away. Just walk away. You can get out of marriage without fault and without pain. That is a lie. A number of you have been through that. I know lots of other people have been through that. I haven't met the person yet who's been through that without pain. They may exist somewhere out there, somewhere in the world. I don't know them. The world will tell you marriage is an arrangement you only need to maintain as long as it works for you. But the Word of God says differently. 
we can summarize the teaching of this whole section in two words. Submission and sacrifice. That's the gospel pattern. I think it applies to both sides. The gospel pattern evidenced in the life of the church and the way the church relates to her Savior and the way that our Savior gives himself for the church. Submission and sacrifice. Submission, verse 22, wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Sacrifice, verse 25, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So we're going to deal with the first hard word, submission first. It's worth saying right out of the gate, Paul is not saying that wives' submission to their husband is the total surrender of their will to every woman dictate that their husband may have. He's not saying that. Neither is he saying a husband has absolute authority like the Lord. Your husband is not Jesus. A wife is not to obey her husband if he calls her to sin. Better to obey God than men. Not at all. What Paul is saying is a wife should submit to her husband as part of her devotion to Jesus. You do it as to the Lord. That's what verse 22 says. You don't do it first for your husband. You do it first for Christ as part of your submission to the rule of King Jesus in your life. And then in verse 23 and 24, he goes on to explain what kind of submission he has in mind. A marriage relationship is supposed to be a picture of the gospel. And marriage is supposed to remind those people who view it of the way that Jesus cares for his bride, his people, the way that his people follow their Savior, their Lord Jesus. Which means Jesus loves the church, the church delights in him. Jesus dies for the church, the church trusts in him. Jesus shepherds and cares for the church, and the church follows him. So if you ask, how am I to submit as a wife to my husband, you might first ask, how ought the church to submit to Christ? Submits by delighting in him, trusting in him, following him. Delighting, trusting, following, that submission. But then comes sacrifice. Here's the other side of the gospel pattern for a healthy marriage. And I believe Paul's reserving the heavy artillery for the husband. Certainly the call to submission is controversial. But the call to sacrificial leadership is costly. Let's be honest. It's not always easy for the church to submit to the Lordship of Christ. We wander. We disobey. We're less than faithful as a church to our Savior. Sometimes obedience to Jesus is hard. It involves surrender and humility and devotion to Christ. The truth is, it's not easy for a wife to submit, and it's not easy for a husband to sacrifice. It will require humility and self-denial and dedication to the pursuit of the best for the other. However hard the demands of obedience in ordinary Christian life, it's always made easier when we pursue obedience in light of the cross. Think about what duty has Christ called you to perform that's not made easier in light of the cross and seeing how Jesus first loved you. What hard obedience has he called you to fulfill, which you may have resisted? You know it's going to be hard. But then you remember what he's done for you. And you begin to see that from his head, his hands, his feet, 
sorrow and love flow mingled down. So you don't find yourself uh, saying, I know this is going to cost me. I know it's going to be hard. I know it will be painful. But you keep going. But love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. I will gladly surrender to him, submit to him, sacrifice for him. Obedience is made lighter when it's offered within sight of Calvary. And the mirror of that pattern is supposed to play out in our marriages. Husbands, you're supposed to make your wife's submission lighter and easier by your commitment to give yourself up for her. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. You make duties into delights when you pour yourself out for her. A husband's love for a wife ought to be Calvary love. And after all, Christ died with a goal in view, didn't he? We're told right here. What's the text say? Verse 27. He did it that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Jesus died to make his church beautiful and glorious and holy. He died. He gave himself to make her holy. Husbands, that's your primary task. Here's the center of your calling in marriage. Pursue the holiness of your wife. Pursue the growth in grace of the wife you love. If you have children, take the little ones out sometime when they begin to squirm so she can stay and sit and hear the word of God during worship. Do you pray for your wife? Do you lead your home to the throne of grace? Are you cultivating an atmosphere of grace? Man, this is your charge. This is your great task. This is how you serve your wife well. By pointing her patiently to the self-giving, sacrificial leadership to the Savior she needs. You want her to love Jesus more than she loves you. That's the secret of a marriage that lasts and glorifies God. And she'll become more beautiful as she's adorned with holiness. Husbands adorn their wives when they teach their wives' hearts to cling more to Christ than to anyone or anything else, including and especially themselves. So now we have these two controversial words, submission and headship. I'm defining headship as sacrificial leadership. But you have to realize something. This is really important. If you don't get this, you're going to screw it up. You're probably going to screw it up anyways, but let's try. Because the Bible gets control of this, and it won't let you add your own content. It teaches us some things in the text that take control of this whole idea of submission and headship in marriage. And the first thing it says, I think, is the man is to never exercise headship to please himself. Love your wives as Christ loved the church and sacrificed, died, gave himself up for her. That principle in verse 25 is a husband must never do anything just to please himself. It's the husband's job to 
put the needs and desires of his wife ahead of his own needs and desires. Always. Let's say you have to buy a car, husband and wife, and you go to the dealer, and you can't agree. Your wife really wants to buy a red car, and the husband really wants to buy a white car. And you can't agree. Completely random colors has nothing to do with the fact that Joanne drives a red car and I have a white car. Does the husband say, honey, remember Ephesians 5, I'm the head, so it's a white car. No, because the wife can say, honey, remember Ephesians 5, you're supposed to die for me. And this is falling way short of that. She's right. The point is, if you're following Christ as a husband, you must never use your headship just to please yourself. You should always be trying to find ways to put your wife's needs and desires ahead of your own. Of course you should let her have the red car if it gives her joy. That's your job. Second thing it says is that marriage bridges the gap between genders. And you notice the way the wife's role is described and the husband's role is described are different. They're not identical. They recognize differences between the genders in marriage. The Bible doesn't say the wife's role and the husband's role, the male's role and the female's role are exactly the same. It doesn't, not at all. Because the Bible takes our gender differences seriously. It doesn't ignore it the way our culture does. Or just assumes everybody is going to do the same thing or let you swap back and forth whenever you want. No matter how deeply different we are, the Bible takes it seriously. But it also gives us a way to allow genders to complement each other and mesh together in a marriage for the health and enrichment of the whole relationship. One of the great dangers to this discussion of these verses is how we allow our political and cultural views to override biblical teaching. Liberals don't like the principles of submission and sacrifice, so they reject them by saying the context for marriage has changed. Conservatives tend to like these principles, but then they fill them with all sorts of additional content, primarily composed of cultural baggage based on past tradition. And I would argue the Bible doesn't allow either. The scriptures itself determine both the context and the content and then challenges you to trust God in this area just as much as you trust him for your salvation. And it's hard for people to do that. Often because they don't understand what marriage shows. What marriage shows. Go to verse 29. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Jump to verse 32. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Profound text, profound mystery. Marriage is a deep subject. Apostle Paul explains, verse 32, this mystery is profound, and I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. This image in the Old Testament is that God is like a husband and Israel is like his bride. The image in the New Testament that Christ is our husband and we are like his bride. And the Bible saying it, it isn't just a metaphor. 
According to Revelation, it points to a reality that someday, at the end of time, there will be a marriage supper of the Lamb that Jesus Christ is going to unite with us that we really are going to fall into his arms. I will say it as vividly as I can. The Bible says human marriage is therefore penultimate, next to last. It points to the ultimate marriage. So even the most wonderful marriage, just a small hint of the joy of falling into the Lord's arms because that's what you were created for. The best human love is just a pointer to that. Human love is penultimate, next to last. The marriage of Christ and his church is ultimate. So unless you see what marriage shows, you won't be single well, or you won't be married well. What do I mean by that? First, you won't be single well. Why not? A lot of single folks here. Well, there's two ways not to be single well. One is to be want, want to be married too much. So you're unhappy. Oh, my life is worthless because I'm not married. You probably haven't said that to me, but I know people here have thought that. And actually, a few have said that to me. The other is to be single and not want to be married at all or to be afraid of marriage or hate the idea, usually based on past experience or most likely based on past observance. My parents had a bad marriage, I'm not even going to try. You see, if you see that human marriage is penultimate, next to last, and not ultimate, then you'll be single well. Because you'll know, I'd like to be married, but the ultimate marriage, the ultimate set of arms, uh, the ultimate marriage feast awaits me because I believe in Jesus. The one I really need, the one that really satisfies me, that one that no human marriage can satisfy, is already mine. Only when you understand that, you won't let your single status throw you off. But on the other hand, if you don't know that human marriage is penultimate, next to last, and not ultimate, you're not going to be married well either. Because you're going to try to make your spouse or your marriage give you what only Jesus can give you. And that's going to crush your marriage under that expectation. I remember years ago, I didn't actually have to think that far back, but I did. I had a terrible day with Joanne. It was my fault. Not always my fault. Usually, not always. Really like the white car. And so, Joanne and I fall into bed at night exhausted from a hard day of marriage. And I said, you know, this is a great mystery. Making a joke. But I was wrong. Because what's a profound mystery about marriage is not that it's hard. Actually, that makes perfect sense. Is your relationship with God hard? Yeah. Is it glorious? Yeah. Is it the most rewarding thing possible? Yes, it shouldn't surprise us that marriage is too. This is the profound mystery. Marriage is the illustration of the relationship Christ has with his church. The marriage supper of the Lamb is a binding commitment of future love. Are you looking forward to that? I can tell you who is. 
I didn't put this in and then I added it back because I didn't know if I could get through it or not. The one person who is, is my friend Chris Six. Chris is the assistant pastor of Alexandria Presbyterian Church, our sister church in Alexandria. And his wife, Sarah, excuse me, she passed away this week after a long battle with cancer. And her funeral was yesterday. She was buried in a casket that Chris made with his own hands. Out of old church pews donated by his church. If that's not a labor of love, I don't know what is. He obviously didn't do it since Tuesday. He's been working on it for months. Lovingly preparing a resting place for your wife. Knowing that there's an eternal resting place prepared in heaven for you by the loving hands of your Savior. You know this. You hope this. You trust this. Because of the binding commitment of future love that he has given you. Think about that. You need to pray. I need to get it together.